6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. Uh, Let's read the entire passage right on through here. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain, but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witness, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe, as ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always. For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are we not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. At this point, Let's go through and try to unpack those passages. Paul says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance unto you, that it was not in vain. Praise God for that. What do you mean by that? 
because it was service. It was a vital living for God. They were not guilty of a superficial religion. Missionary's conduct. That's the way a Christian should act. Did you realize each one of us is a missionary? We're being watched all the time. Paul had stopped by in Thessalonica. The reason he stopped there was the, the church was there because he stopped there. He founded it. Paul visited some other places that he wasn't necessarily the founder of. This one is one he, he himself started. Paul was there only three weeks, but that was long enough to start a riot. <laughs> okay? Now, how did he do this? It was a successful startup. How did he do this? Boy, what a sermon he must have preached, huh? Well, we'll look at that in a minute. Verse 2. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. At Philippi, they were really beat up, insulted, but thrown in prison and all that. Some people say that's called market research. They should have modified their message maybe a little bit. Not Paul. <laughs> okay. The insult in Philippi did not close Paul's mouth. Think about that a minute. How many of us might have had that kind of experience that, gee, maybe we ought to be a little more cautious or something? But it had precisely the opposite effect in our God. And it was not wild fanaticism, but determined courage and confidence in God that spurred Paul to still greater boldness in Thessalonica. Okay? From Philippi to Thessalonica. We were bold in our God. Had just the opposite effect that people thought it maybe. And more than bodily suffering, it was the personal indignity that had been offered to him as a Roman citizen. You might want to reread Acts 16, where it has that whole episode. They finally found out he was a Roman citizen. They were panicked. They tried to get him out there. He wouldn't leave. <laughs> that got him even more panicked. He's a Roman citizen. You know, it's interesting to see how Acts and the epistles throw light on each other. We understand the epistles when we really put them in the context of the book of Acts. And the conditions of the book of Acts illuminate the epistles. So you want to read those always together. Luke tells us how Paul resented the treatment accorded him as a Roman citizen. And Paul here shows that the memory still rankled his in his bosom. Not the suffering, but the indignant. He was a Roman citizen and they were not entitled to do what they did to him. They didn't realize that this Jew was a Roman citizen. That was an unusual thing from a very distinguished family and all that sort of stuff. So he was preaching boldness in conflict. You know, the word, eparasisiasamemetha, <laughs> uh, that's the Greek term for superfragilistic expialidocious, I suppose. I don't know, that has 12 cells, well, this one only has eight, so they're not even getting warmed up yet. But what it really means is speaking out publicly, making a public declaration, boldness in conflict. By the way, do you realize secret believers do not lead souls to Christ? Often there are many audiences, I think, I, I compliment the audience because I think they're probably the most, uh, most uh, amazing undercover Christians in the nation. Their family members, the people at work never suspect you're a Christian. If you're on trial for being a Christian, there would not be enough evidence to convict you. No, secret Christians do not lead souls to Christ. So that's a, something to consider. And now the Roman flogging they had, though, was no light matter. They were arrested on false charge, stripped of their clothes, publicly beaten without a trial, thrown into prison with their feet in stocks. That was all against the Roman law. And when they found it was a Roman citizen they'd done it to, they panicked. They panicked. So he had a sit-down strike. 
If any of Paul's opponents charged that Paul had a police record, he would have been quite willing to have the facts known. They were quite anxious to have them covered up. It was not Paul, but the magistrates who had reason to hide the truth. He arrived in Thessalonica still bleeding, and that's the picture you have as he writes this letter. In there he speaks of contention. The word is agonized. It's an athletic term. It's a contest, an arena, struggle, a battle. This doesn't imply that he was tactless or devoid of common sense. It means just strictly that there was a, it was a contested situation. And they had courage in spite of the persecution. And uh, Christian courage springs from the knowledge that God is our God. God is raising sons, not vegetables. That's sort of the point, as I might summarize it. You think Paul was ever careful? When a Christian starts being careful in serving the Lord, the power goes out of his message. Never does the Holy Spirit lead one to pussyfoot around. That's the Missler Gospel. So, Check the scripture and see if that is what you read. But that's what I see. And I think that uh, doesn't mean you're obnoxious, but you are bold, you have courage, steadfast, and you don't tiptoe. You don't do market research to see what kind of a message is going to be acceptable this Sunday. That's pussyfooting around. What was Paul's greatest sermon? Interesting question on an exam, wouldn't it? What's Paul's greatest sermon? At Damascus after his conversion was a possibility. After Sergius Paulus and the Isle of Cyprus was another big event. At the synagogue of Antioch of Pisidia, that was another major event. At Mars Hill, Athens, boy, that's a much celebrated talk there. The school of Tyrannus in Ephesus for several years. His defense at Corinth was another conspicuous example. His arrest in Jerusalem caused a riot. The Romans had to rescue him to save his life. Then before Felix and before Festus and before Agrippa. There are ten occasions that Paul gave sermons. Which one is his greatest one? None of these. What was his greatest sermon? That'll be an exam question. His life in Thessalonica. His life in Thessalonica was his most important sermon. Wasn't what he said, it's who he was. Paul's going to tell us about the sermon he preached at Thessalonica in the next few verses. And then he described the relationship he had with the Thessalonians. One of the things we're trying to do in the Institute is really emphasize relationships, not doctrine. Yes, we want to be pure in our doctrine, but that's not going to save people alone. It's relationships. That's what discipleship is all about, relationships. And he's going to be like a mother to them, that he comforted them in verse 7. He's going to be like a father to them in that he charged them in verse 11. And he's going to be like a brother to the Thessalonians in that he challenged them. So there's three different aspects to the relationship. A mother-father-brother type of relationship in terms of comforting them, charging them, challenging them. Let's go jump in. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. Boy, does that distinguish him from many pulpits. Verse 3 and 4 is very characteristically Pauline. The first sweep away the false, and then with the ground cleared, he's going to set forth the positive presentation of the truth. So watch that format. That's typical Pauline rhetoric, if you will. And Paul's preaching was according to the Word of God, and that's missing today. How tragic it is you can go to church after church after church and not hear the Word of God. Interesting. He says, not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor of guile. It's pure in its content and its intent. 
It's not adulterated by human philosophy and human speculation. The word guile, by the way, is a Greek word, doulo, which really means catching a fish with bait. Trickery. Any crafty method of deceiving or catching the unwary is what it should be in the rhetorical sense here. Did you realize that the most dangerous kind of preaching is that which is partly true? Wow. Partly true. That's the most dangerous kind. Now these letters that we're reading were written from Corinth. He'd left Thessalonica. He's down in Corinth. He gets the word that they've got some problems there, so he writes the letter back to those guys. They're written from Corinth, and Corinth was notorious for its moral degeneracy. When we study First and Second Corinthians, I'm often tempted to call it First and Second Californians, because the word for Corinthian became synonymous with promiscuous or prostitute, fornication. Well, Corinth was very similar. You know, there's a very similar situation here. By the way, prostitution was a sacrament. The priests owned the harlots in town, as it is in India today, by the way. Temples in town were Aphrodite and Astarte, the temples of Apollo and Zeus and Ares, and also Dionysiacs and uh, Kabiri. And they had phallic emblems outside and all of that. We don't have to get into all that here. Verse 4, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. The word allowed there, by the way, really means having been approved of God. It means putting to the test, as you would a coins, for an example, tested for genuine. See, when coins in those times, when they try to save money, they put less and less silver in the coins. So even though you got a coin of the realm, you'd weigh it to make sure it's complete. You follow me? So the coin's being tested for genuine or for full weight. In other words, this is not a self-chosen work. We were approved of God, is what he's saying. Okay. Now, has God given you the truth? Has God given you some truth? If so, what are you doing with it? All the way through the parables, we hear these parables, he that hath more will be given. That he that hath not, that which he has will be taken away. You look at that, that sounds like double talk. No, God gives you some truth and sees what you do with it. And if you use it, he'll give you some more. It's a growing thing, see? So once you've been given the good news by God, you are then a trustee. God gives you the word to see how effective you are going to be to be a steward of it, share it, grow it, if you will. A fiduciary, that's a term we don't use in common language, we should use it more often. A fiduciary is one that puts the rights of others ahead of his own. A doctor to his patient, an attorney to his client, and so on. A fiduciary. And when you have the Word of God, you're a fiduciary of it. And you may not whittle it down, you are held accountable. God is going to hold you accountable for the truth you have. In the Corinthian letter, Paul says that he that hath, it will be given to him as he hath, not as he hath not. So don't break your trust. The ten ta- remember the ten talents, the capital and interest, that whole thing. And Hebrews 13, 17 is a reference for you there. The ten talents. The guy that had ten got ten more. The guy that had five got five more. The guy that had one hid it. What was his crime? That he hid it? No. The question is, what was his image of God? Well, I knew you were this, this, this. Okay, if, if you knew that, that then, then why didn't you? In other words, he's holding him accountable 
for his understanding of the, account of, uh, of the character of God. Interesting. Pleasing God. Can a Christian do X? You know, like, is it a right to dance? Is it a right to smoke? You had all those questions? That's not the right question. That's not the right question. Can a Christian do whatever? The real question, should a Christian do such and so? Oh, that's easier to answer, isn't it? Sure, if it pleases God. Wow. Is it pleasing to God? That's the real question. What's the message of our entertainment media today? Actually, we shouldn't even start on that one. Right? Okay, we'll move on. By the way, to take credit is not a Christian uh, appropriate for a Christian to do. Did you know that? It's amazing what you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit for it. If you get credit for it, you've already gotten your reward. The smart guy doesn't want credit now. He lets the Lord keep the ledger, you know. Paul always chose God's approval over man's. To do otherwise would be to disqualify God's messenger. That's where he makes that point in the Epistle of Galatians. Paul would not compromise his message to gain human favor. Yet he was anxious to please men if he could. But even that was for their welfare, not his own. He often speaks of testing or proving our hearts. And of course, we hear that when we speak of hearts, we're talking of the cardia, the very depth of the inner life. It's, just, it's, a, it's used idiomatically, of course. If you have any questions about the heart, mind, and soul, I encourage you to take a look, either our little briefing back, The Architecture of Man, or even better, my wife's a, a, a thorough study called The Way of Agape. It's become a classic in, in, in dealing with all that in very practical terms. Let's get to verse 5. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Flattery. We call that soft soap, and you know soft soap is 90% lie, isn't it? Hmm? Smooth-tongued discourse, giving favorable impression to gain over others for selfish advantage. That's the way you might define flattery. Watch out for that. The early church was plagued with people attempting to cash in on their Christianity. Now, we, of course, don't see any evidence of that today, do we? Only on television, huh? Livelihood through pretensions. And that, of course, is going on widespread today. Do you ever realize that sometimes your friends are probably more dangerous than our enemies? Because they lead you into false presumptions about yourself. Dangerous, dangerous. Nor a cloak of covetousness. Cloak is a specious pretext which conceals the real motive. And, of course, covetousness. Plenexius, it's a desire to have more than that which one does not have a just right. That's the only commandment of the Ten Commandments that deals with intent. All the others are overt actions. But the covetousness is a heart thing. It's the one of the ten that is one of intent, not rather than an overt act. And God is witness. See, Paul appeals to God, the only one who knows the heart. God not is the only one that knows it. He's the one that's watching all the time. You and I live our lives before an audience of one. All the rest are irrelevant. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Wow, several things here. First of all, there's no apostolic title in this letter in the salutation. He doesn't see a need to do that. In future letters, he will. He will lean on that. He doesn't in Hebrews for a number of good reasons, but 
He does elsewhere. In verse 6, he has a list of what he did not do, but in verse 12, he's going to make a list of what he did do. The law says, don't do this and that. Grace says, it is done. It is finished. To telestai, paid in full. But it's interesting, he emphasized that he was not a financial burden to them. There's nothing wrong with getting money from the ministry, but he sought every chance he could of not being a financial burden to those that he's calling. And there's a number of examples of that throughout his letters. But support of the ministry is valid. 1 Corinthians 9 deals with that. But he says, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Interesting term. It actually is a term like a nursing mother, or like a mother bird, if you will. Remember Jesus in the closing verses of Matthew 23, speaking of Israel, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. That idiomatic, like a nursing mother in effect. Paul says we. It's always we by the three of them. You see, you've got Timothy and Silas. We were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherith her, her children. And the word cherith is, is to warm, if you will, as birds covering their young with their feathers to warm and protect them. That occurs in Deuteronomy 22. It's also Psalm 91 opens that way. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty and so on. And loving care, a nurse like after her own children, not just her, her duty. You met people in Thessalonica he never knew before and how he loved them now as trophies of his grace. Boy, Paul's passion for the, his converts is very interesting. You see it uniformly in all his letters. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. See, he gave not just the gospel, he gave himself. He gave ourselves. That's the antidote for professionalism. Boy, be careful of that professionalism. Paul wasn't professional. He was passionate, personal, caring. Dear to us. That, word, that dear, same word is beloved, by the way. You were beloved to us. But ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable to any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Night and day. That's a Hebraism there. It was also among the Greeks. In other words, a 25-hour day is another way of putting it, maybe. No 40-hour weeks for Paul. He worked day and night, literally. It's interesting, in the days of Thomas Jefferson, there was a great agitation for a 60-hour work week. 10-hour days versus... 12 for a six-day week in his day. An interesting situation. And the word doulos, of course, means bond slave. Coeur d'Alene, by the way, is the heart of the bond slave. You may know that background here. We often speak of tent making. That term occurs in Acts 18.3. We don't know what it really means, by the way. We have a lot of presumptions. See, tents were made of uh, silicium, which was a hair of a species of shaggy goats, and that was a very flourishing occupation in Tarsus, where Paul came from. The word actually means tent tailor. Some scholars suspect it means the Jewish tallit, the, the prayer shawls would have those knots and so forth. But that's all speculation, because that all came really somewhat later. In any case, he had a trade called tent making. We're not sure precisely what that might be. There's different conjectures among scholars. But the Talmud, incidentally, required that every Jewish father must circumcise his son and instruct him in the law and teach him a trade. Three things. Not just circumcision and teach him the Torah, 
but also to give him a trade that was required. He who teacheth not his son to trade doth the same as if he taught him to be a thief. Okay. So I guess he doesn't go into politics. Okay, fine. Let's go on. Jews did not have salaried teachers. Did you realize that? Saul's father was of means and may have been a textile merchant. Paul seemed to support himself somehow. At Thessalonica, his income from his work was supplemented by contributions from Philippi. He worked at Corinth, we know. He refused to accept support from the Corinthians. He didn't do that everywhere, but he did do it there. He worked at Ephesus, we know, in Acts 20. So somehow he found it useful to not be a burden to his parish, if you will. His his independence was important to him and his ministry. Why? It cut off criticism in 2 Corinthians 11. It set a worthy example in 2 Thessalonians 3, we'll see next time. He proved his unselfish love for them in 2 Corinthians 12. It allowed him to share his meager means to those in need. Wow. See, that's one of the great things about having me. That's one of the great things about having savings or work or having a, having a good financial success is that it gives you a way to help others. And God will use that, obviously. Well, he continues, Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. That's his sermon. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably We behaved ourselves among you that believe. That's the way you make disciples. That's the way you witness. Their behavior confirmed their belief. Ye are witnesses. And you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. A father and his own children, actually. Education plus discipline. Exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. We, notice the plurality, it's not just Paul himself, it's the trio. All these participles are in the plural, indicating that all three were engaged in this work. And comforted, now that's a strange word, it actually means persuaded. It's, an old, it's part of the old English use of that word, but paramuthiomai is persuaded. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.